You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good? I like the response. Zero response. I like it. I like it. Hey, my name is Josh Chevalier. If I haven't met you, I'm the college pastor here at Midtown. And quite frankly, I'm just excited that I'm here today. So Monday or Tuesday this week, my whole family, our three, two of my kids and myself, got like a 24-hour stomach bug. And so on Tuesday morning, uh, we were supposed to have this like staff prayer and planning day, plan out the rest of the year. And I ruined that with my stomach bug. And uh, so we canceled that. And later that morning, uh, Jake actually texted me. He was like, hey, like, I know what it's like to, like, plan a talk while being sick. Like, are you going to be okay? And, like, I'm, like, sitting there on the ground, like, up in my kid's bathroom, like, not being able to move. And, of course, but I text back with all the confidence I can muster. And, like, oh, no, I got this, man. No big deal. And I'm, like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to get this or not. So, and, he, and here we are. And then, like, we all got better, like, on Wednesday. And then my daughter gets, like, double pink eye on Thursday, my 10-month-old daughter. And so, uh, luckily, like, we're all better. We got medicine. So, if you've shaken my hand today, you'll be fine. I feel bad for Jake because now he's got to use this mic after me. So, uh, pray for him this week that he doesn't get too sick. But I'm just thankful I'm here. Hey, we are actually uh, kicking off a new series. So, if you're new here today, this is all new for all of us. So, Thanks for joining us and hanging out. And so we're going to actually be walking through the book of Philippians. And so we're going to look at this idea of, the, of having finding joy in gospel partnership. And so uh, I'm looking forward to this. Jake is going to kick us off in the actual book of Philippians next week. But I'm going to give a, a little bit of an intro or the backstory to how this church started. But in order to do that, we're going to start in uh, Philippians 1 and look at 3 through 8. A um, little backstory on on this book. This is, uh, of all of Paul's letters that he writes, he's the author of this letter, and of all the letters he's writing, this is one that's the most consistently positive and personal. And you're going to see that right right here off the bat, that Paul just loves this group. He seems to have a special place in his heart, a special affection uh, for these believers in Philippi. And so he says this in verse 3. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you, and all my prayers for all of you I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until tomorrow, until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And then verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So right here in just these few verses, you can see how much Paul cares and loves for these people. That they clearly have a special place in his heart. A couple things we see in verse 3, you see this gratitude that he has for these people. He says, I thank God every time I think of you. And then in verse, uh, verse 6, he says, um, I, since I have you in my heart, he has a special place in his heart for these people. It says wherever he goes, he has them with them. And then he ends and he says, I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And if you think of that 
phrase, it just carries so much weight because it's the affection of Jesus that brought him to the cross. And he was willing to lay down his own life. And I think of like John 14 or John 15 when Jesus says like, hey, no greater love has anyone than this, that they lie down their life for their friends. You can see kind of the sacrificial love uh, that Paul has for his friends here in Philippi. But the question for me and that I think of when I, when I read this intro into Philippians is how did Paul actually get to this point where he loved these people this much? And I think to learn about his affection for these people, we need to go back into Acts, into Acts 16, and look at the beginning of this church. And these three stories and these three conversion stories of this fashionista businesswoman, this slave girl that was demon-possessed, and this jailer, ex-GI, Roman soldier. And so we're going to look at Acts 16. Before we get into that, I'm going to pray for us, and uh, then we'll get into it. God, thank you so much for these stories that Luke wrote down for us in Acts. God, we're going to get to see just how much that you love humanity, how that you have a unique way that you want to intersect each of our lives, that you long for each of us to know you and to have a relationship with you, and you make pathways for us to meet you. So thank you for that. Thank you for Paul's love and his example of how to love others uh, here in this scripture. And I pray that we would model that in our own lives and live it out. God, we love you and praise you in your name. Amen. And so, a little background on Paul. So, Paul is essentially, we know this, but he's a missionary. And his basic strategy for uh, being a missionary is to actually plant churches in strategic cities all throughout Asia and Europe. And so, um, if, he was, if Paul was here today, like he would be going to places like New York, L.A., Chicago. Hopefully, he'll come to Austin, considering I think we're a pretty strategic metropolitan area. Um, but he would go to these strategic urban centers, and he would find a common ground with a group of people and begin to share the gospel, and then have a few people come to faith and train them up, and then send them out to reach their people uh, in their neighborhoods. And so this was Paul's strategy. And so we're going to see him come to Philippi, and it's no different here. And so we step into the story in Acts 16 and verse 12. And Paul has just come. Uh, he's been in, uh, in Asia, essentially, on the edge of Asia. And he gets this vision of a Macedonian man. He basically says, hey, come help us. Come share the gospel with us. And so Paul has this vision and decides he's going to sail from Asia to Europe. Um, and that's where we step into the story here in verse 12. He says, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. And so, uh, so Philippi, some background on Philippi. So you can see here it's a leading city. It's a Roman colony, um, a leading city of Macedonia. It's a Roman colony. And um, a couple of things that made it strategic is that it was, uh, Macedonia is basically what is uh, present-day Greece um, and where Paul's coming from, Troas, is essentially modern-day Turkey. And so uh, Philippi is on the edge of of Greece. It's the first place, essentially, he lands in Europe. Um, And so it's a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. And so back then, being a Roman colony was significant. And so there wasn't many of them in Macedonia. In fact, uh, yeah, Philippi was one of the only ones. Um, 
and that made it strategic. It was filled with retired Roman soldiers, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, these people that were in Philippi were very uh, proud to be Roman citizens and to considered on equal status as those that were in Rome. And so you see a lot of that. Um, there was a highway called Via Ignatia that ran from Rome throughout the east. And so this is basically the major highway of transportation. And this ran right through Philippi. And it made it extremely strategic for business and commerce and things like that to be able to travel back and forth. Um, it was 10 miles inland from the Aegean Sea, which is essentially the sea that separated um, Asia and Europe. Uh, it had a river that ran through it. The Gangites River ran through it, which also allowed for commerce and transportation and things like that. Um, and all of this kind of culminated in it being a major business hub um, in Europe. And so, um, and obviously this is the first place when Paul comes, this is the first Jesus community that's actually started in Europe. So Philippi has a lot of significance um, here. And so it's, it's not an accident that Paul's here and starts in this place. And then you read on in verse 13, kind of gets, he gets into the city. He's been there for several days. And he kind of goes throughout his, his common strategy when he goes into cities. He tries to find a common ground with people. And so it says in verse 13, it says, on the Sabbath, he went outside the city gate to the river where, he, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of the house, her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So whenever Paul would go into a new city, he would basically try to find a synagogue or find uh, people that were Jews in the area. And so this city, um, it didn't have a synagogue. So there wasn't, um, there wasn't a, a Jewish presence there, enough of a Jewish presence to have that. So if there wasn't a typical synagogue, they would go to find a place of prayer. And that was typically found uh, by water sources. And so he, Paul, goes by the river where they would have, been, where they would have met. And he finds that there's actually apparently no Jewish men um, that, are, that are in, um, in Philippi. And so he sees a bunch of women essentially having, I guess, what is considered a Jewish Bible study. And one of them, Lydia, he meets. And she's, she's a, what's considered a worshiper of God or maybe a better term is a God-fearer. So in this, she's not Jewish, uh, but she has a favorable disposition towards the Jewish God or monotheism. And so she's interested. She's spiritually curious. Um, and so a few things we learn about Lydia here. She's, her hometown is Thyatira. Thyatira is actually in Asia. So she's an Asian woman. Um, she's a fashionista. So she's a successful businesswoman. It says she's a dealer in purple cloth. Um, Thyatira, where she came from, was actually known for uh, the, the, uh, the water there, the water sources, um, kind of had this quality to them that allowed uh, to make purple dye, essentially. And so it allowed her to um, essentially sell textile, sell clothing uh, that was purple dye. And so, and purple dye back then was restricted to only higher class uh, people. So she basically dealt with primarily upper, wealthier class, kind of social elite was kind of the people that she, she rolled with. Um, she has a house here, and you see that. She owns her own home. She's a single woman. 
And so there's no mention of a husband or anybody else. Um, but she also invites them into her house. And so she clearly has, and there's four people here with Paul. There's Paul, there's Silas, um, there's Timothy, who isn't mentioned in the text, but was mentioned previously. And then Luke, who's the writer of Acts. So there's four of these dudes, and she invites them to come stay at her house. So she clearly has a house that's big enough to fit four separate people to come live with her. So this lady's loaded. And she probably also has a house in Thyatira. So she has like multiple houses uh, and multiple continents. Uh, so anyways, she's got money. Um, she's an authority of her household, right? So she has the authority to invite people into her household, um, which again, in, in first century um, Europe, this probably wasn't common. Um, if she had a husband, she probably would have had to, you know, consult. And, right, and even like now, like, I have to consult with my wife if somebody's going to come stay the night with us, right? So she's not consulting anyone else. She's making all the, she's calling all the shots in her house. Um, and and she, she could have kids. We don't know. But she has people in her household. She, she more than likely has servants um, that are kind of underneath her. Um, so we just see that this is a very powerful woman in her day. Um, and lastly, we see, again, that she's a God-fearer, that she's spiritually curious. And, and she hears Paul preach this message, and there's something about it. It says that the Lord opens up her heart, and she begins to ask questions. They, they begin to engage, and it seems like they have more of an intellectual conversation where Paul actually engages Lydia's reasoning, her rational mind, to begin to talk about Jesus and who he is. And she's receptive to that, that, uh, the message, and she comes to faith, and it says her and her whole household believe, and you see kind of this real tangible evidence almost immediately where she says, hey, if you see me as a believer— like, come stay in my house. You see this hospitality that's um, immediate in her own life, kind of this re receptivity to the gospel, if you will. Um, and so you see this Jesus community in Philippi start with this high-class woman, but it doesn't stop there, and it gets, this church gets way more complex here in verse uh, 16. And so it continues, um, and it says this. It says, once when we are going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Doesn't sound like a bad thing, but you see, if you ever want to know if Paul's human, here's your moment. It says, Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. And when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. So there's a lot that we could unpack here. There's a lot in this story that I'm not going to get into. Demon possession. Paul gets annoyed and then cast things out. This, this is weird. Um, but I want to point out, the thing I want to look at is look at the difference between Lydia and this slave girl and this contrast between these two people. You see, Lady, Lydia, she's an, she's an Asian woman like we talked about. The slave girl, is, she's Greek. Lydia's wealthy. The slave girl's impoverished. Lydia's in control. She's calling the shots. This slave girl has somebody else telling her where to go. She's enslaved both spiritually and also physically. Lydia's a seeker. She's really trying to figure out who God is. Um, and then we see the slave girl who she is proclaiming the way of salvation, even if it's kind of demonically. Um, 
but she's proclaiming this way of salvation. Lydia meets Paul kind of in this formal setting. It's very structured. seems like they have a very rational conversation. Uh, the slave girl, like things are very chaotic. She's following them around. There's not this structured meeting. She's following around Paul in this very disruptive manner. With Lydia, Paul engages her heart intellectually, kind of has this conversation. With uh, the slave girl, he, he actually engages her with spiritual power, right? And um, you can kind of see this both simultaneously. It's like, it's just startling. Um, but it's also instructive. It's startling because just how powerful and how evident these two women are very different. But instructive because God seems to meet each of them uniquely where they're at. And it's evident from this story that the delivery of the gospel takes on the context of their personal need. And I think, uh, and what I mean by this really is that, that Paul, like, he engages Lydia intellectually because that's what she's going to respond to. And he engages the slave girl by spiritual power because that's what is enslaving her in her own life. And it's, and I think this is just, true of us, and we're going to get into this more later, but it's true of God and a a principle that God typically meets us where we're at. And whatever we need to come to faith, that's where God wants to work in our life. And a lot of times we can find those places in our pain points, right? Like those places of pain can really be um, indicators of where we would be most responsive to God's love in our own lives. Um, But we see that in this story. You see this deliverance and this conversion of this uh, slave girl that's possessed by a demon. And it's a crazy scene, but it only intensifies from here. And so you see in Acts 16, 20 through 24, it says that, uh, you know, again, in, let me go back to verse 19 real quick. It says, when her owners realized that her hope of making money for them was gone, they seized Paul and dragged them into this marketplace to face the authorities. And then verse 20 says, they brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. You can imagine, like, basically in uh, Roman philosophy, Roman religion, Caesar was Lord, right? And so Paul comes in and advocates that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you can see even um, that there's immediately going to be a dividing line for these people. Who is Lord, Caesar or Jesus? You can essentially see that Paul is, again, this would be an unlawful practice for them to say anything but Caesar is Lord. And so, um, so they kind of appeal to this, even though I don't think they really care about what they're preaching. They just care that Paul, uh, you know, messed up their way of, of income. It says, the crowd joined in in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Now, this word carefully essentially means safely. In verse 24, it says, When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so, so you see that they go into jail, they're fastened into stocks. And the way that we typically think about stocks and kind of our modern way of thinking is like 19th century or 17th century or 18th century stocks where like, you know, uh, 
I'm from like uh, the Northeast, and so we would go visit. I go visit a place called like Williamsburg. And it's kind of old colonial town, and they had these stocks where you like put your hands in right and your head in, and kind of sat in the middle, the city square, and people throw tomatoes at you and you get mocked and things like that. But that's kind of what we think about. That's not what stocks are in first century um, Philippi. What stocks were is they would contort your bodies in all these weird ways, and they were essentially torture devices. So you contort your body in all these ways, and then they would fasten your hands and your feet and keep your body in a way that was essentially um, cramping your body up, and it was extremely painful. So you can imagine this scene where these dudes get beaten, they get flogged, um, their wounds aren't taken care of, and then this jailer who's been told to keep them safely decides, like, hey, I'm going to be really good at my job and torture these dudes. So we get this introduction to a jailer that's not a very nice guy. Um, and then it goes on, and, um, and it says, it, but yeah, and you see in verse 25, you see Paul and Silas's reaction to this jailer. And it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And don't miss this. It says, and the other prisoners were listening to them. It's fascinating. So these guys are mistreated, even taken to the nth degree, farther than it was supposed to be taken. And yet their, their response is singing hymns and spiritual songs. And this is just an aside, but I, I think it's interesting where it says the other prisoners were listening to them. And Paul and Silas are falsely mistreated in the midst of this situation. And they're suffering. And yet it's their response to this suffering that's radically different. And it's something that even the other prisoners look at and they're listening. Like, hey, this isn't normal. Like when people get tortured, when they get mistreated, they don't respond by singing. And yet there was something about that that got these other prisoners' attention. And we're going to see that they do something unusual here in a minute that I think is a response to what they see. And I think for us in our lives, like what is it that makes us stand out and look different to other people? I think one of the key things is how do we, we respond to moments of pain and suffering, especially when it's done in a way that's where we're falsely persecuted or um, maybe lied about or when things don't go our way. When we respond differently than what's the norm, People take attention to that, and they see that. And they do here with Paul as well. And then in verse 26, it says, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And this wouldn't have been unusual at this time. There was earthquakes all the time in Macedonia. But it says, At once all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. Now this would have been unusual. And so all their chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison door, doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called, called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Now, think about that. Like, Paul says, Hey, we're all here. Don't kill yourself. Now, somehow... Paul has convinced these other prisoners to not flee either. They're, all their chains are off. They, all of them, any of them had the option to leave. And yet 
all of them stayed. Now, I have no idea how Paul did that, but that's, that's pretty incredible leadership. But they stay, and the jailer turns on the lights, falls at the feet of Paul and Silas. He's, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God and his whole household as well. And so you can see here again, this jailer's story is completely unique from both Lydia and the slave girl. A few things about this jailer that we see. The jailer is probably an ex-GI manning these jail cells. So they typically, old Roman soldiers um, would come to Philippi. Um, and then, you know, essentially they would work in a field that was familiar to them after they had retired. And so he was an ex-GI. Uh, the jailer, unlike Lydia, was not intellectually curious about Paul's faith. He wasn't really seeking kind of the spiritual realm, the spiritual world. There's no demon possession that we, we can see. This dude's faithful to his job, maybe a little bit too much based on his torture methods. He's not asking these deeper questions of life, of you know, meaning of life. And um, unlike Lydia, he's not like super wealthy, but un, you know, in contrast to the slave girl, he's not super impoverished either. He's kind of this middle class um, dude. And the, but the question is, how does the gospel actually grip him? And one of the things that we know just throughout history is that as a jailer, if you have prisoners that escape under your watch, the, 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 uh, the penalty of that is death. And so you essentially, if your prisoners escape, you get killed. Which is why the jailer has this response in that moment, right? Where he, he is about to kill himself. Because instead of going and being disgraced and, and humiliated in front of a bunch of other people, he says, I'm just going to end my life myself. And then Paul, like, shouts out and saves him from killing himself. And I believe that for this jailer, it's this radical act of kindness and grace and love that Paul displays to this man that changes his life. See, Paul could have easily escaped, but he didn't. He stayed because he cared more about this jailer's life than even his own physical freedom. And the jailer's floored by his actions, so much so that he connects his radical actions with his faith. And he asks this question, what must I do to be saved? And then we read the rest of what happens there. Where Not only is his life changed, but the trajectory of his family and his whole household has changed as well. <clears throat> and we can see from these stories, three radically different people between this fashionista, this slave girl, and this, this male jailer. Three radically different conversion stories. One, Paul appeals to this woman's intellect. The other, he appeals to this spiritual power. Um, and then this third with this jailer, this radical act of kindness. And yet it's these three stories and these three individuals that actually begin this Jesus community in Philippi. I mean, it's pretty crazy if you think about it, like bringing like these three different, radically different worlds together and saying, hey, go start a church together, go start a community.
community. Like any kind of like, uh, if, you, if you look at like church planning or any, any kind of, um, like if you want to start a movement, you don't go for like diversity. You go for homogenous, right? You try to go into one stream. And yet Paul and Jesus has a radically different idea of what's going to happen here and how to start a movement. And it's awesome and it's beautiful. And when we ask the question about how does Paul gain such affection for these people, these are the stories, these are the people that Paul thinks about. So I want to flip back to Philippians 1, 3 through 8 and look at those verses again in the context of these three stories. And so you see, like with Paul, when he's writing Philippians, when he says, I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus, like he's thinking about this jailer and this slave girl and Lydia. This is, that when he writes uh, Philippians, it's about 10 to 15 years after he visits in Acts 16. And so when he says, I thank God every time I remember you, this is a long-standing relationship that they've had. And he's thinking about these people. He's probably wondering, right, with, with Lydia, like, man, how's business going? How's the house church going? This, Lydia is, is the leader of this house church in Philippi. You see, this slave girl who was a girl at the time has grown up, right? This is 10 to 15 years later. Does she have children? Is she married? What is her life like? This jailer, is he still torturing people or has his life been changed by the gospel? These are all questions that Paul must have been asking. And, and, and you see, again, you see this deep affection that he has for these three people and this, these people. And I think we get this picture in, um, in Acts 4, or sorry, in Philippians 1, 4 through 6. We, we get a, an answer to the question of why they have such deep affection for them. In verse 4, he says this, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, these are people that had been partnering with Paul for a long time in the gospel. And we're going to see that kind of that theme weaved throughout Philippians. We see that they gave money to Paul. They gave... Um, they gave help to him throughout his journeys throughout Europe and seeing the gospel expand. Um, and then, it, and, you know, kind of ending, it says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the, the day of Jesus Christ. And, and I don't want you to miss this. It says this. It says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. When Paul thought about these people, it brought great happiness to Paul because of what they had done together to see people come to faith. This idea of joy or rejoicing is going to come up constantly throughout this book. And you're going to see it connected to this idea of gospel partnership and this idea that God uses us to reach others but is also doing a work in us. And that as that, the work of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, changes our lives, it gives happiness to those that get to help us in that journey as well. And so their gospel partnership brings Paul great joy. 
And for those of us that, I, I've been in an Austin for about 10 years now. And so I've gotten to journey with some people for 10 years and getting to partner with the gospel. And any of you guys who have partnered with other people for a long time, Hill Country UT was started in 2005. There's people that have journeyed together for 13 years in gospel partnership. And Jake and Krista came down here in, in 2013 and started these alpha courses and that kind of the, the inception of this church and saw several people come to faith. And there's many people here that were involved in those communities that can, that can talk about this idea of gospel partnership and, and say things like Paul did and like say, hey, every time I remember you in my prayers, I have great joy because there's something about partnering in the gospel that brings great joy to those that get to do it together. And those are fun stories. And there's, there's just, it's just a rare joy that comes from being able to partner together in the gospel. And I think before we can partner in the gospel, there has to be something that we actually believe for ourselves first. That's ultimately what Acts 16 16 shows us about God. I think it shows us two very important things here in Acts 16 that I want to point out. Um, And they're pretty simple. They're pretty obvious in the text. But the first is that God wants everyone to have a personal relationship with him. And I think that's part of why why Paul tells these three, or sorry, um, Luke tells these three specific stories about Lydia, the slave girl, and their jailer, because they are radically different. In fact, you see this as kind of a writing technique in the, in, in the scriptures. You see it in John, John does it in John 3 and 4. He, he says, tells in John 3 the story of um, Nicodemus, this Pharisee. In John 4, you see him talk about this Samaritan woman that Jesus meets at the well, these vastly different people right next to each other, these conversion stories, essentially. And then you see this in Acts 16. And what is God telling us? I want everyone to come into a relationship with me. And I'm going to tell you stories and share stories with you that you can relate with because any of us can find ourselves in one of these three stories. The second thing that we see here. And, we, and I talked about earlier, is that God meets us where we are. That for Lydia, like she's engaged in her intellect because that's what is interesting to her. That's how she engages in life. And so Paul engages her that, and God knows that as well. And he opens her heart, and they have this conversation. Same thing with a slave girl, right? Like she is uh, possessed by a demon, and so God uses this kind of spiritual power that maybe we don't see a lot in America, but it happens in other countries and other continents. Um, and you see kind of this crazy move of, of the spirit um, that is undeniable in this slave girl's life. And then you see it with this jailer, right? Like this radical act of love and kindness that we just talked about. Each of, them's met, each of them is met exactly where they are. And for God and for us, he wants to meet us exactly where we are. I remember when I was 19 years old uh, and when I first came to faith. Um, I remember I was mowing my lawn and just really was just unsatisfied with the person I'd become, really broken over these choices that I had made. And I remember um, praying to God and just saying, hey, like, if I'm going to follow you, like, I, I need a friend 
that's a Christian. Like, I had lots of friends, but none of them were Christians. I was like, I need somebody who loves Jesus to come alongside of me. And you know what? Like, as crazy as it was, like, three weeks later, I met a guy that would become my best friend, would be my wedding, and was at the same place I was at. And so if you're, like, struggling with God or um, not sure who he is, or maybe you're a Christian and you're just not sure if God loves you, like, where is it that God, where you want him to meet you? And I would just pray that God would meet you in that place. And I have confidence that God will because he longs to meet us where we're at. And he longs for each of us um, to know him and have a personal relationship with him. And so we're going we're gonna to celebrate communion. Um, and anyone here who's like put their faith in Jesus, you are more than welcome to partake in communion with us. Um, and if you haven't, I would pray that you would just make this time a time of consideration um, of just how much that God loves you and longs to have a relationship with you. And, and maybe this is a moment that you can choose to be kind of that, that defining moment in your life where you um, decide to take that next step in your relationship with God. And so as we come forward for communion, maybe we're reminded of the good news of that Jesus loves us and longs to have a relationship with us. Um, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have uh, a couple people in the back that are going to also be available for prayer if you want that for any reason. Um, Akiko and Jeff will be back there. Um, but I'm going to pray for us real quick, and then we'll, we'll take communion. God, thank you so much for Acts 16. Thank you so much for these stories that Luke wrote down for us about these three different characters. God, and the unique ways that you intersected their lives and showed them just how much that you love them, you love them and, and care for them. God, I pray that as we sit here that we would, uh, that you would speak deep into our hearts and our souls. Jesus, you asked the question over and over in your Gospels uh, to people that were in need. You asked them the question, what do you want? God, and I pray that as we're trying to figure out what that question is for us, God, the, the answer to that question is, what is it that we want? God, that we would see that you offer life and that you long to give us the desires of our heart, that you long to give us belonging and purpose and meaning. Jesus, thank you for that, and thank you for what you've done for us, and for your grace, and for your love, and for your mercy. God, we love you, and we praise you in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.